So we've been looking at the promises of God from Genesis all the way through to Revelation in the Bible. And as we've done this, some themes have emerged. For a start, God's promises are very different to ours. When we say, I will, often what we mean is, I might, or I ought. And sometimes when we say the words, I will, what we mean is, I won't. The comedian Peter Kay says that he once called a taxi company, and they answered the phone, and the first thing they said was, oh, he's just coming around the corner right now. He said, would you let me order the cab first before you start lying to me, please? Aspirations, obligations, and outright lies. Just some of the human ways in which we use these two little words, I will. And here in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, again, we see God depicted as different, and his promises are different. In fact, God's promises are entirely distinct from ours because he is as well. Verse 14 tells us some things about God, the words of the Amen. He tells the truth because he is the truth. He is true. And the faithful one, the true witness, this is Jesus, the beginning of God's creation, not the first thing to be created, but in fact, the origin of it, this word Beginning means ruler or origin or originator of creation. He knows all things and he controls all things because he made all things and he keeps them made. This is what he is and what he does. And here we reach a second theme that we've seen many times in this series. From his unique vantage, God sees things that we don't see. Sometimes uh, when God tells us to do something or not to do something, we don't like it and we think that he must be wrong or his word must be wrong. The chances are that if you disagree with God, you're in the wrong because he alone is perfect. And he says in verse 15, from this position of perfection and perfect knowledge and, and wisdom and sight, I know your works. I know what you're doing. I know what you're like. This is Laodicea. This is the seventh of seven churches receiving this letter. Like all of the others, God knows what they're up to, and he says this of them in summary. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. Now, it's a clever play on a thing that they knew very well in this town. Let me tell you a little bit about Laodicea. There were these springs, hot springs, about five miles away from the town. And by the time the water had flowed down into the town through an aqueduct that they'd built, the water had cooled down considerably and taken on some dirt and become quite murky as well. No longer was the water good for bathing, like it was up in the hot springs five miles away in the neighboring town. And it was not yet good for drinking either. It had not cooled down and purified like the water further away, five miles in the other direction. And so God says to them, Jesus says to them with, with perfect knowledge, the health of your local water system is like an allegory or an illustration for the health of your soul. If you know what the city water is like, then you know where I'm going with this, he says. And because you are lukewarm, 
You're neither hot nor cold. You're neither thing. Promise language here from Jesus. I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, if you're in any doubt, being spat out of the mouth of God is not a good thing. It's not something you want to happen. It's a rebuke. If you like coffee, you'll know that coffee is really good when it's hot. Now, I can hear my mother complaining already because she hates coffee. It's an illustration, okay? You can tea, substitute, doesn't matter, whatever. Mint tea, herbal tea, just substitute it with something that works for you. If you like coffee, bear with me, an illustration only. You'll know that it's really good when it's hot. And often in the morning, when I do my Bible study, I make my coffee in an insulated travel mug so that it stays hot the whole time and, and doesn't go cold while I'm reading. Sometimes then in the afternoon, if I'm out making visits, going to the hospital or something, and I pass a Starbucks, bear with me, some people hate it, it's just an illustration, I get an iced coffee with peppermint syrup, because I really like that, a bit of a boost. I find both are great. Hot coffee in the morning, iced coffee in the afternoon, I like them both. But I'll tell you what is not great. Hot coffee that has cooled down, or iced coffee that has warmed up. Both of them are equally gross. Maybe the creamer has congealed and formed a pallid and rubbery skin on the top, and you don't notice this until you take a gulp and it hangs off your lip in a disgusting disc. Or, or maybe you get back into the car after your hospital visit, forgetting where you've been, forgetting that the sunshade was open on the roof. You take a sip of melted, watery coffee sort of tepid muck, and you, what is it you want to do when you get this in your mouth? The first thing you want to do is, you want to spit it out somewhere. By the way, learn the lesson from Rick Moranis in the movie Spaceballs, never spit if you're wearing a mask. It only makes things worse. This is, that's not like the main point of my sermon. It's just an illustration. I, I got an amen from Tammy. <laughs> Fantastic. This is Christ's feeling about the worship of Laodicea. That, that image is Christ's feeling. He, he can't wait to get it out of his mouth. It's left a taste in the mouth. It's making him gag, this tepid worship. Now, what does lukewarm, tepid, cooled down, warmed up, something in between worship look like? Let me tell you, it's not about churchmanship, high or low. It's not about style, you know, contemporary or traditional. It's not about online or in person even. It is, it is about the heart. Perhaps there was a time when, when faith was hot, when faith was exciting, when, when faith was more committed and more costly to you, more risky perhaps. Perhaps there was a time for you when Jesus Christ was your passion. One of the things that you live for, maybe. Perhaps there was a time when, when Christ was the first thing you thought of in the morning, the last thing at night. And this is a difficult talk to give because it's going to sound rude. But the tepid condition of the soul in Laodicea describes aptly where most Christians in the West are today. Lukewarm, Christian-ish in their worship. This is the norm. Like, like water that was once boiling hot but has cooled down and gone murky is the faith of the United States of America today and not just this nation but many. We've been 
doing all these temperature checks at the moment before people can come into the building. Would you like a spiritual temperature check today? Because there is an app for that, if you can believe it. Look at your calendar. Look at your bank. Look at your call list. Look at your maps. Look at where you've been and look at what you've done. Look at who you've been with. Look at what you've spent money on and look at what you said to whom. And this will tell you a lot about yourself. God gave us phones as a spiritual temperature check. This is a spiritual thermometer that we carry around with us. Keep asking. Do you stretch yourself financially for something because it's important to you, but don't give to God because there's, quote-unquote, not enough money? And do you run around riot, hectic, stressed out, but don't get to church because there's not enough time? Is that you? Does the news of the world seem more good to you than the news of the Word? Do you spend more time on social media than you do in the Bible? If so, I recommend that you buy yourself a very nice spittoon because that is likely to be your eternal resting place, says Jesus Christ. Now for a third theme. And this is a shock to them, this third theme. Not to us because we've seen it in so many of these passages, but a shock to them. They didn't see any of this until Jesus Christ said it to them. This is news. This is shocking news to them. Verse 17, there's almost, you know, Jesus is is anticipating what they're going to say when he says this stuff. Bridget, are they clicking off? Are they leaving? I'm just wondering. They're still, wow, the spittoon and you're still there. Thank you, church. I love you. (laughs) For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Jesus anticipates that some people will say this to his rude remarks. Laodicea did not feel lukewarm to itself, did not feel spittoon-bound from its own perspective. In fact, Laodicea was rather proud of itself. I'm going to tell you some more about the town. It was known for three things. It was known for money, healthcare, and fashion. There was gold everywhere in Laodicea. In fact, the synagogue had 20 pounds of it confiscated by the Romans And that was just their mission budget, if you can believe this. They had great health care in this city. There was a business selling ointment for the eyes, a kind of salve that they made there. And the fashion of Laodicea was second to none. People from all around wanted Laodicean clothes. This is like a, a combination of three great world cities that we know today, you know, for its wealth and for its healthcare and its fashion, it's Dubai, it's Milan and Pittsburgh, all rolled into one. It's even better, they don't have UPMC rigging the system, can you believe it? And verse 17 continues, thank you Robert, he's laughing. Verse 17 continues, am I fired yet? Not realising, i.e. they didn't see any of this, not realising somehow this had escaped their attention, that you are in reality... Wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Poor? What are you talking about, Jesus? We hoard gold, we hear them say. Blind? Speak, silly Jesus. We make eye cream. Naked? (laughs) We sell clothes. This is the weirdest thing we've ever heard. But of course, he's speaking spiritually to them. 
using more of the physical things around them to make a simple spiritual point. But unlike the allegory of the water system, which served merely as an illustration, just an illustration of the nature of their faith, Jesus says here these things are actually causing the problem with their faith. What is it that has caused a tepid faith in Laodicea? Success is the answer. Verse 17, for you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing. I don't even need God. The problem of their town is that life is so good, they do not feel like they need God. I've discovered that often it's when times are good, when success is flowing, that we feel this way. Nothing will cool down your faith like success. If that sounds like a rebuke on you, it's not. It's a rebuke on us. It's a rebuke on myself as well. I know this very well from my own walk with God, that when times are good, my faith cools down. It's when times are difficult, when I reach a problem that is beyond my capacity to fix. It's then that my faith warms up the most. It's, it's good. Church, the message is clear. Being self-sufficient is insufficient, but a crisis can be a catalyst to warm up your faith. We have one. The pandemic is the ultimate example of something beyond our control. You know, when it first started, we thought, well, it'll be somewhere else. Then when it first started coming here, we thought, well, it'll be quick. Then when it started to drag on a little bit, well, we'll fix it soon. And here we still are. The ultimate example of something beyond our control is happening to us. And it has affected our spiritual temperature like nothing I've seen in all the years that I've been ordained. Some of us are cooling down and flowing on by. Many of us are warming up. When I say comments like this, people come and talk to me about them. Many in our church have a stronger faith than they did back in March. Many are warming up in their faith. It's, it's wonderful to see. And of course, this is where we reach a fourth theme in these passages of Scripture. We can all warm up, every one of us, by grace. Verse 19, Jesus speaks. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. The reason why he's so strong with this terrible image of the spittoon is because he loves them. This is a shock. This is, you know, a defibrillator to the soul. This is a, a really important thing that he's saying. Last chance. There's two types of promise here Jesus makes. Contingent promises that he will do this or he will do that, as there are in each of these letters. Here's the good promise, he says, verse 19. Be zealous and repent. Be zealous. So clever. It means to warm up. Literally, the word comes, the root word, means water that has started to boil. Warm up. How? Repent. What is it? It doesn't mean feel sorry. It doesn't mean lick your wounds. It doesn't mean try harder. It doesn't mean do a grand gesture to impress God and shut him up. It means change. It means turn around. It means change your mind. It means head off in a different direction. Reorient your life back towards Jesus. Go back to verse 18, a how-to guide on how to 
untepidize your faith. How to microwave your faith and make it warm again. Verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. A spiritual counterpart, if you like, to each of these problems in the town. Gold refined by fire. Invest in that which is eternal in the kingdom of God. White garments, an image of of purity. And when we're clothed with Christ, when he becomes our identity, there is no shame. Whatever it is that, that we've done wrong and maybe yet will do wrong is clothed and covered by Christ such that we stand before God as though we were Christ. Whatever it is that you've been up to that makes you spittoon-worthy, Christ wishes to clothe you with something new, something suitable, and there will be no shame. So open your eyes. See something that you have never seen before. Do something new, something warm, something exciting, something fresh. See Jesus standing in your place because of the cross of Christ where he died for you. You are presented as worthy. Invest in that. Behold, look, he says. Then it's really weird because he says, listen, look and listen. I stand at the door and I knock, it says here. The tense of this verb, knock, indicates that he goes on knocking. He doesn't stop knocking at the door of your heart. Bob Dylan had his theology backwards. We are not knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. That's semi-Pelagianism. Heaven is knocking on your door. Jesus Christ is knocking and continues to knock. Jesus never stops knocking at the door of your heart until he stops. And then one of two things will take place. A spittoon or a throne. Those are the options. Anyone. Jesus says, if anyone, anyone can repent You don't have to be good to start with to turn to Christ. That's why we call it grace. Anyone can repent. And if anyone hears my voice, anyone opens the door, is knocking on all these doors. If anyone opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. A meal is a really intimate promise for someone who was once revolting to God. Instead of being spat out, now we feast It's an extraordinary turn, isn't it? It's more covenant language from Jesus Christ, reminiscent of the Last Supper, entirely appropriate for a day like this where we have our first in-person service gathered around a table since March 15th. Wonderful. And Jesus says, to the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Another positive promise, another sitting promise, sitting to eat, now sitting to rule and to reign. What a promotion from the spittoon. What an elevation this is, that Christ would choose to seat us in a place of honor, like a throne, far, far above any temporal thing in which we've put our faith and trust, completely out of proportion to any faith or measure of faith that we had, certainly out of proportion to our sin, because this is grace. And in case there's any doubt about just how great this image is compared to the previous one. He also says, 
as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. The promise here is to raise us infinitely above all things, to seat us on the very throne of God. There is no higher throne, and Christ promises that that will be our eternal dwelling place, to treat us as though we were God. That is the promise here, to sit you on his throne. You know that thing where your children are little and they're running around and they've been hurt and you just scoop them up and you sit them on your lap. Embrace them. This is the image of God here. To, to, to place you on the throne of God. What gentleness. Whatever it is that you've trusted outside of God will pass away. And if you continue to trust in these things, your faith will cool down and continue to cool until you pass away with it all. Then he says, at that point he will spit you out. It's a promise. But there is an alternative promise. No matter how tepid your faith is, he rebukes because he loves you, and he knocks because he loves you, and he promises a grace that ends with you as the guest of honor at a banquet and even seated on the throne of honor at the banquet. If we repent, if we open the door, Jesus Christ makes a promise to us, I will enthrone you, says the Lord. Let's pray. God, it's epic. It is unbelievable that you could paint for us a picture of two such great extremes, such grave danger, such high honor, such tepid boredom and misery and filth compared to such beauty, such heat, such passion. Thank you for your passion for us. We pray in some measure that we would respond to that with our own. Amen.